Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So we have, what, three and a half million registered voters in New York um, of like probably, what, four to five million people who are eligible to vote in the city of an 8 million population, I, you know, something around there. Um, and you only get 800,000 or so to actually vote. Is it that they don't care? They don't know to care. They don't, they're distracted by other things. Is it the society of scarcity mindset of scarcity you talk about where people are too busy trying to pay rent to care about voting or community involvement? Like why do we not give a shit? Having the ability to care about politics is something of a luxury good. Truly, uh, you know, like you, you, you do have other basic needs to attend to. They're busy paying the bills. They're, you know, like the, they're busy um, scrambling to take care of their kids uh, in, in particular ways. Uh, I, I, you know, I, and, I, and I think it's sometimes tough to care um, because a lot of times your candidate doesn't win. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> On today's episode of Yang Speaks, Andrew and myself, Zach Grauman, your co-host, we sit down and we talk about how we lost the New York City mayor's race. Guys, it's the closest thing we'll get to kind of a post-mortem from Andrew Yang for a while. We also talk about what was going through his head as he was running and where this movement goes. It's a fascinating episode. It's a good debrief of the six-month roller coaster he was just on. You're not going to want to miss it. Tune in to Yang Speaks talking about the New York City mayor's race recap right now. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Yang Speaks, where I am going to be doing a debrief with Zach. Oh, the postmortem. The postmortem. I'm going to ask what everybody's thinking right now. How are you feeling? Thank you. I'm doing all right, really. Uh, you know, I still have a bit of smoke coming off the top of my head, a lot of emotion, um, you know, uh, like a, a set of results that didn't go our way. And so there, there's there been a lot of talks and phone calls and uh, things like that. But generally speaking, I'm doing all right. You know, it's like you, you look up and you realize that uh, it's summer, which I hadn't really realized until very recently. <laughs> <laughs> You know, some days you don't know what day of the week it is. Yeah, man. Yeah, like I, I, uh, I have to remind my uh, my kids what daddy looks like because uh, you know I've been out of pocket a lot. But the, the things are good on that side. I feel I feel like uh, I need some 
exercise and some uh, some healthy days. Um, but generally, I, I'm doing well. I'm pretty positive, uh, you know, despite the fact that this race didn't go our way. For people who are concerned about me, thank you, love you. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm fine and uh, still pumped up in my own way. It's Monday morning quarterback. Like, where's your head at as you look back? What's on your mind that you want to share? I do want to take a moment to look at the results because some people are obviously very interested based on the ranked choice voting. Uh, I believe that Eric Adams is going to win uh, based on the numbers. I'll give you an example of a woman in the Bronx who uh, said to me, I voted for you. And then to prove it, she took out her worksheet that showed who she was going to be voting for. Um, And it had my name, number one, which I appreciated. And then Maya Wiley, number two, uh, and then Eric Adams, number three. Um, And so most people would look at it and say, well, if someone chose me, uh, then maybe they wouldn't choose Eric or if someone chose Maya, they wouldn't choose Eric. But um, but all three of us were the top three choices on her ballot. And I think that's going to be very normal. I think that there are going to be people who uh, have different candidates in different orders uh, such that it's almost mathematically impossible for Eric Adams not to win based upon the, the lead that he has. So I want to put that out there to, to folks. And it, it's one reason why uh, looking at the numbers, uh, you know, we decided not to uh say that, you know, we thought we had a path because based on the numbers, we didn't think we had a path based on the numbers. uh, It seemed like a near certainty that Eric Adams will be the Democratic nominee. So just want to put that out there for folks who are um, looking at the numbers. And obviously it's a first ranked choice voting election. So like you would want to wait and see and like no one knows precisely what's going to happen. But based on everything I've seen, uh, I, I think it's a near certainty that Eric wins. Yeah, there was in all of the ranked choice voting polls that were done um, when they when they actually there's a lot of polls that were done, but not all of them actually ran all. It's called seven rounds of uh, ranked choice voting. No one ever came back from much of a deficit. Um, I think the highest deficit I saw, like someone go from second to first or first down to second, um, was, I think, four points, three points. Um but no one had come close to overcoming a, a nine and a half point lead, which is what Eric has over Maya Wiley, um, and a twenty or you know well over ten point lead over over Kathy Garcia. So I agree with you. I think the numbers are pretty obvious. I mean, it's possible, but probably not. I don't think so. Not an absolute certainty, but it's it, it's very 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 likely. When we started running, everyone was indoors. It was COVID. Uh, the fact that I was even interacting with people physically outside was remarkable. And I think there were some people uh, even that had an issue with it, though everyone followed our lead uh, pretty quickly. Uh, But the primary issue in the campaign went from reopening and COVID and the economy and jobs to crime and security uh, sometime around the same time frame, really when everyone started coming outside again. In a crime race, um, it's a hierarchy of needs, right? Like it Crime trumps the economy and safety trumps the economy in many ways. Um, and the problem there for us, I thought, I don't know what you thought, but the government experience um, tends to be more appealing when you're talking about safety, um, like the outsider, new breath of fresh air is less appealing when people are getting shot on the street and stabbed on the street and don't feel safe in the subway. I don't know what you thought, but I, that was what I felt when, you know, when we prep for debates or 
when you were out in the street? Yeah, I think that was certainly one aspect of it. And there were, were some tensions uh, within the team where people would say, well, you can't out cop the cop. Uh, what was one thing I heard any number of times. Uh, and for me, both common sense and the numbers indicated that crime was going to be the number one issue. Uh, and so I tried to, in some ways, uh, make as strong a case on public safety as uh, any other candidate. And we wound up getting some incredibly powerful endorsements um, in that realm. So thank you to the firefighters uh, and the police captains for uh, believing in me as the, the right person uh, to try and deliver public safety. But I do think that common sense was that if you have crime as the number one issue, then the person who uh, was a police officer has, uh, has like a massive edge, um, at least in terms of public perception. And there were people on the team even who said to me in the March timeframe said like, if this race is about the economy, you win. If this race is about crime, then Eric wins. That seemed awfully fatalistic at the time. Uh, but by the time the actual voting rolled around, I think public safety and crime was the number one issue for 71% of voters. And then it was a very steep drop off after that. Yep. I remember a conversation you had that I'm going to over, oversimplify as I retell it, but it was, um, you're like, Hey Zach, I, uh, we need to rework my stump speech a bit. And I was like, what's wrong with your stump speech? Like, you know, we know you're the cash relief guy. Like that's the main message. Like we hammer it home. Like I know it gets boring, but let's stick with the message. And you were like, be crimes up. And when I go to speaking with people on the street or new supporters or donors or whoever you're talking to, he's like, I feel like I'm not talking about the elephant in the room. If I'm not talking about crime. Um, I remember you saying that. And I think you're right. Obviously you're right. Uh, like the numbers here. My question is like, one of the things every politician I think struggles with um, and we struggle with, of course, is like there's not a lot of room for nuance um, when you're running for office. You're either like you're tough on crime or you're not or you're defund the police or you're not or wherever you want to go. Um, we had like always talk about the, the nuance, like when we do long form, we're like we need to be safe and, safe and we can have a just police department. Like thoughts on the lack of nuance when you're running, but the nuance in your own mind was um affecting you or, or anything you were thinking there? Uh, you know, I, I think that um, given who I am and my profile, um, like I needed to hit one clear message um, uh, and try and have it come through in a way that maybe some other candidates could uh, naturally get away with, like, uh, you know, more nuance or people would naturally, like, would uh, take that, that same message differently. So I, I, if you look at it, uh, I think that there were a few things that, uh, changed for us. Uh, number one was it became the public safety and, and crime election. And I talked to uh, someone in Atlanta uh, yesterday, and he said the same thing's happening in Atlanta, uh, that like in other parts of the country where crime is surging as people are outside and there's a lot of pent energy. Um, and it's defining apparently elections all over the country where uh, so it's not just in New York, but it, it definitely is very, very front and center here in New York. I think the, the other thing that, and you don't want to uh, be someone who uh, just bemoans coverage, uh, but I, I think objectively we had a very, very hostile media environment working against us from day one. 
manufactured controversies where you're looking at it saying like, what is going on? There were a lot of folks that said it to me, even people that didn't support me would say to me like, what is going on with the New York Times in particular? The New York Times even acknowledged like, we, we can't stop uh, talking about Andrew no, Yang. We can't stop writing about Andrew Yang. Yes, as a name and article. And most of the coverage was negative. Um, and then the explanation for it was like, well, you're the front runner. Um, and then there was a point when maybe uh, Eric was a front runner. Um, and that there wasn't the same level of scrutiny, despite having like a lot more to work with. So much more to work with. <laughs> yeah, three corruption investigations. And it left me in like a very strange place where I felt like, okay, I guess I have to take it on then. I felt myself like I was in a position where I, I had to uh, somehow call out problems with, uh, with Eric uh, because it didn't feel like the media was going to do it. Uh, and that was unfortunate. And then even then when I did that, that people would be like, what happened to, you know, like nice guy, like agreeable uh, Andrew Yang, like now he's being so negative. And then you're looking to be like, well, you know, I'm kind of doing your job over here. <laughs> and so one of the most frustrating things really was the entire, where does Eric Adams live thing? where, uh, you know, it, it news came out that, well, maybe he doesn't live uh, in Brooklyn. Maybe he spends most of his time in New Jersey. And then his response was to give people a tour of a basement. Uh, and uh, I talked to a reporter who was on that tour and the reporter said, no one actually thinks he lives in that basement. Uh, like having, having been on that physical tour, he was like, I do not think that he lives there. But then after that, nothing like the story just uh, goes away. Um, and then you were looking at it being like, OK, so let me get this straight. Like <laughs> we we're not sure where he lives and he showed you an apartment that you don't think he lives in. Uh, but, you know, there, there's nothing else to be said here. Uh, you know, I, I imagine myself in a similar position where like if it had come out that, you know, like uh, I lived somewhere else and I gave someone a tour of a place that I didn't live in. Like, I, I do not think that would have been the end of it. <laughs> it would have been punt page for days, man. Yeah, the, I think it just would have gone on and on and on. Um, and so uh, even something as basic as the fact that, you know, in, in multiple uh, interviews, he said that he can't live without a bubble bath and the basement that he gave people a tour of didn't have a bathtub. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take like a detective to say like, hey, you know, maybe there's an inconsistency there. <laughs> but once again, it fell to me to point out what, what seemed like the most obvious inconsistency. Um, and, and then, it, and then it, it like, you know, it just put me in a spot where I felt like, uh, like I wasn't making a positive case. And I, I've had multiple people uh, say to me, even who work in the media, uh, who said, who would say like, yes, like the, the coverage was not uh, terribly balanced, uh, or fair. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, some of it you could say, well, uh, you know, like it, it's the front runner treatment, but some of it seemed, uh, beyond that people were more comfortable with, uh, an insider with problems than someone new to the system. Yeah. We had built up a lot of goodwill. We, you had built up a lot of goodwill with people who watch CNN who correlates very highly with people who read the New York times. Um, and that was a strong base in our early polls. And that had um, basically evaporated because of all the, the pieces against you in the New York Times over the past five months. You could list them off. You had a piece on you saying, I love the gay community. You had a piece on 
giving your dog away. They thought you didn't understand the subway system, which was BS. Your favorite subway stop you said is Times Square, which is right next to you. Like that's where you live, it's your stop. They were just like silly pieces over and over. Um, I thought the piece they wrote on Venture for America, um, not being legit was fundamentally ridiculous. Um, you built that from scratch, from nothing to a $6 million organization. It worked everywhere. Like trying to take that away from you is fundamentally fucked up. Fox had it at 4,000 jobs like a couple of days ago and then they came up with like a, a much smaller number because they cherry picked one narrow step. And they put it in the headline. They put, he promised 100,000 jobs and he created 150, which is bullshit. Um, and if you had tried, who cares? Like, you know what I'm saying? If your goal is to set that many and you built an entity to row towards that direction and never got there, that's also shouldn't be something to scoff at um, or ridicule. It's just critics. They threw under the bus the work of dozens, hundreds, thousands of, of people. Yes. People, you know, like who, who've done really awesome, uh, remarkable things. Um, and because of a political agenda, they just decided to treat that very, very unfairly. Uh, it, so th that one, I think, was among the worst of it. I had a number of friends say to me, it's like, look, after this, like, I, I can't actually believe in the New York Times because I know you, I know your work, and then I see this other stuff and I don't even recognize it. Uh, uh, or I had people say to me that they were watching the mayoral debates and then they were watching the coverage in real time and saying like that the coverage uh, is covering something completely unlike what they're actually watching with their own eyes. Um, so that there, there was like a real distortion effect. I felt like I was operating like a world of funhouse mirrors a lot of the time. Um, uh, it was it was not a good feeling. I had a number of people say that they got phone calls um, asking them like negative leading questions. And then when they just said positive things, the reporter would just lose interest. And then like, <laughs> like we they're writing they're writing a narrative, right? They're they're They have their narrative. They're going to pick and choose what fits the narrative. But what was interesting was that, you know, like. Uh, I hoped that the goodwill uh, I had among uh, voters and, and uh, readers was high enough where they would be able to uh, see through some of this. And it was for a while, like it was for a period of, I don't know, three months, four the, months. The New York Times attacked you right out the gate, right? So it probably lasted three, four months. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like that, that was my hope. Uh, during the time. Um, but it was tough because there weren't that many ways to communicate, especially when we were all indoors. Uh, you know, like you could do some things via um, social media. Um, but like the, the, the funhouse mirror thing like was very dispiriting and it felt very clear and real. And then the third thing is that the makeup of the New York City special interest uh, voting groups, where I spent a lot of time courting different groups, different unions, um, and would lose out virtually all the time. So I'd, I'd get calls sometimes from leaders saying like, hey, really liked you, uh, you know, like you you did a great job talking to us and our members, but we're going with uh, this other candidate uh, because of various relationships that um, we, we've built up with them over time. Uh, and so the the big winners of that were Eric Adams uh, to a lesser extent, Scott Stringer. Uh, Scott Stringer got the teachers' unions. We got um, down the stretch very late uh, the firefighters and the police captains, which um, don't represent enormous Democratic voting blocks. Uh, that you know they're they're very very powerful um, symbolically. Uh, but the city employees, as another union, um, you know that that represents a lot of uh, voters. Like that, there were a lot of uh, 
uh, a lot of blocks uh, of voters uh, that we spent a significant amount of time um, trying to court and would lose out, um, you know, nine times out of 10 or, or even more. Uh, I think that that's something that looking at it now, uh, it makes sense. Like you wouldn't expect um, the union that represents tens of thousands of employees necessarily to, to get on board with that person who's new. Um, but I think that narrative uh, also played out in, in different ways. Uh, a supporter of mine said to me, uh, said that like all the institutions were out to, um, to defeat you, like uh, essentially from day one. Um, and, uh, you know, that applied to various interest groups as well. But I also think that affected you, the team, also, like these things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen and they affect how we how we act. Um, did you ever feel like um, you couldn't be as authentic as you wanted to be? Did you feel like you had to give a political line more than you wanted to be? Did you feel like um, because of the funhouse mirrors or whatever you're talking about, did you feel like you couldn't be you? Well, certainly it's tough when if you say something that seems innocuous, like you don't include the fact that you're transferring off a subway line and then it becomes a thing. Like you said, like you live next to a subway station, someone asks you your favorite subway station and you say it and then like that, that becomes a thing. Um, so it, it certainly makes you think like, huh, like, you know, um, you ask me like a, an innocuous seeming question. I give like a fairly natural answer and then that, that kind of spirals into something. And um, there was a very consistent dynamic with journalists in particular, where when they were interviewing me, there, there was like a, like trying to like, you know, play gotcha. And then, um, all the time they were trying to ask me whether it's like, uh, you know, like, do you, do you think differently about this? Do you like, uh, do you apologize for this? And then, uh, if you say for a moment that you, uh, either think differently or apologize about something, then it becomes a story. That's why they're asking. They're just looking for fuel. And then you you want to deny them that fuel, uh, but then you wind up being much more on guard. I had dozens of people over the course of the campaign uh, try to record what they thought of as like an embarrassing interaction where they would have like, uh, you know, they'd take out their smartphone and like, uh, you know, uh, try and, catch me or ask that question, which, which, you know, ma- makes you naturally just feel like, okay, like, you know, and obviously most people are lovely and most people just want to talk to you um, and uh, take a selfie. And then, you know, every once in a while, someone uh, will uh, try to have what they consider a viral moment. And so it does change your behavior for sure. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. 
you're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. So one of the big variables uh, was going to be who voted and uh, what the makeup, what the nature of the electorate is going to be. And historically, you had something like seven to 800,000 people vote in these kinds of races. And the question was whether turnout goes up because the city's in a very tough spot and this was an historic election. And uh, turnout did not go up to the point that, to, to the, uh, point that you might have hoped uh, I think right now, how many votes have been cast, Zach? Seven, almost 800,000. Just on 799, So you might have something like 900,000 votes. Um, so that's not that different from the 800,000 in the, the last uh, race. Um, so it, it's a, it's an uptick, to be sure. It's maybe a 10% uptick. Um, but you're still looking at the likely winners being decided by, I don't know, maybe like 300,000 uh, votes or so, which would be uh, something like 4% of the population, maybe less. Uh, there are 3.2 million registered Democrats. Um, so uh, let's call it fewer than 30% of registered Democrats actually turned out to vote. Um, and I, I will say that a number of people expressed to me that they wanted to vote, but uh, they weren't registered Democrats. And so they could like they were independents. They couldn't. Uh, you had to change your registration back in February. They didn't know that. Uh, there was one person who said to me he was working families party and he thought that that meant that he could vote in this election, but he couldn't because you had to be a registered Democrat. Um, so that so that that was uh, to me something that's a continuation of the reality of most elections, really, in a lot of different environments. But in New York City, where Bill de Blasio got elected with 280,000 votes uh, back in 2013, which is, you know, again, maybe 4% of, of, uh, of the city, um, I think you're going to wind up with a similar number this time, um, where you have like a fairly narrow band of voters uh, that determine the leadership uh, in the city. A significant proportion of those voters are very, very attached to um, city government in some way or, you know, like an institution that works with the city in some way. Um, And so you didn't have the massive increase that you'd hope for uh, in this context. Uh, And this is something that uh, certainly we talked about a lot on the campaign. Um, But this speaks to to me to be to be even bigger, where. Uh, we have to make it, in my opinion, easier to vote in elections like this um, for for people of um, of any uh, party. And certainly, uh, if someone does want to vote, um, we should make it easier to do so. There are other places that have same day registration, as an example, where you can like show up and 
just make that registration happen. So we have what? Three and a half million registered voters in New York um, of like probably what? Four to five million people who are eligible to vote in the city of an eight million population. I, you know, something around there. Um, and you only get 800,000 or so to actually vote. It's crazy how much people don't give a shit about either local politics or mayor or just anything political in general. What, what I learned, people should care because the mayor has a lot of say, a lot of control of how the individual lives are people in the city. Is it that they don't care? They don't know to care. They don't, they're distracted by other things. Is it the society of scarcity, mindset of scarcity you talk about where people are too busy trying to pay rent to care about voting or community involvement? Like, why do we not give a shit? Generally speaking, um, having the ability to care about politics is something of a luxury good. Truly, uh, you know, like you, you, you do have other basic needs to attend to. And then if you uh, decide to care, too, is that I met so many awesome candidates around the city who are running for a city council or uh, comptroller or other positions. Um, and a lot of them were going to lose, uh, you know, the, but they were still working their hearts out and they had volunteers who were working their hearts out. It's really lovely and beautiful. Um, and, you know, like the, the, uh, ability to engage on that level, I think is something that most people might not have because they're busy paying the bills. They're, you know, like the, they're busy, um, scrambling to take care of their kids, uh, in, in particular ways. Uh, I, I, you know, and I, and I think it's sometimes tough to care, um, because a lot of times your candidate doesn't win. Um, you know, it's hard. Um, and so there's something that I think um, ends up hardening you, like you can become more jaded um, through the process. What, what's interesting is that I think most people sense that, you know, like I, I have um, like uh, an intention to help people and, you know, like have big visions. Um, and we activated a lot of people around those visions nationally. Uh, and then I ran for uh, office in New York City and uh, translating that vision and optimism to people uh, was difficult uh, uh, for a number of reasons. But I think a lot of people that had been in politics for a while, um, you know, had, had just become accustomed to the particular uh, way that things happen. I think a lot of people uh, ignore it because they sense that there are these things going on that um, that they're not sure that they'll be able to influence. And if they invest a lot of time and energy trying to make it happen, then, you know, like that their um, efforts may not be rewarded. So in, in a way, people not caring is is rational, which is kind of sad. <laughs> you know, like, like that's one of the things that I'd like to try and change. Um, like I want to make it rational to care. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, if government doesn't work for you, why would you work to elect people in, in the government, right? I mean, like it's, if you think you're going to get meet the new boss, same as the old boss, then why bother? Let me ask you this. We've talked a lot about, you talked a lot about ranked choice voting. I know you're going to write about that in your, your upcoming book. Um, and we talked about the need for breaking the duopoly. So there's more parties to engage more types of people and more people with different ideologies. And you don't feel like you have a false choice. Um, but that probably, at least my opinion, um, but I think I'm right, is that it probably won't increase the amount of people who care you know, exponentially or, or enough. Um, one solution that's been offered, and I, I don't think we've ever talked about it, is mobile voting. Um, 
And with like blockchain technology, and you can make that hyper secure, theoretically. Um, have you thought about mobile voting or other solutions to get more people to vote and care? Yeah, I, I have thought about mobile voting. I have friends who are working on it. Even if you enable mobile voting right now, the folks that run these elections are the political parties. Uh, and they, I don't believe, would actually adopt mobile voting, even though it would theoretically dramatically increase turnout, um, which, which is one of the problems. Uh, so I'd love to enable that. I want to make it easier to vote. I want more people to be able to vote. Uh, I think that is the answer moving forward. Certainly, this set of experiences has made that even clearer to me. Um, and for, for those of you who are uh, have been following us and the podcast for a while, first, thank you. Uh, really grateful. Uh, you should know that we are uh, just getting started. We have these big plans for how we can help solve some of the problems that I uh, ran for president on. Um, and that's always the big goal is like, how are we actually going to further the vision I believe that running for mayor would help us further the vision. I think I was right. Uh, despite the outcome, I think I was right. Uh, you know, we certainly learned a ton, uh, made a lot of new friends um, and uh, have a firmer sense uh, of just what we need to do. Um, but mobile voting is part of it, Zach, uh, making it so that people have genuine choices and that the process isn't as constrained is a part of it. Um, trying to get more people to care um, and make politics less of like this insidery thing um, where you have to uh, subscribe to like particular behaviors and like commitments uh, and whatnot in order to have any kind of stature or say, um, uh, I think uh, is a part of it. So the, the plan is still, um, uh, the plan is still in effect. You know, it's like and one of the reasons I'm grateful to people who are listening is that I know over the last number of weeks, uh, it's been kind of a series of non sequiturs, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're going to get back toward um, building up the agenda and the movement um, pretty quickly. Uh, you know, the and the 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 division is still very clear um, and I'm as excited as ever. Uh, yeah, like that. And this this race has helped uh, us figure things out uh, and, and learn a lot. And, you know, if you look at it, the fact that I had a chance at crashing the New York City mayoral race and winning the thing is in itself remarkable, uh, you know, and we, we gave it a really great effort, uh, made a lot of progress, fell short. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll be right back at it tomorrow. That's true. This podcast has been about building things and building that community. I would like to, um, you know, I, I think you and I both could use a healthy summer break, um, you know, as we keep the podcast, you know, well, obviously we're not going anywhere, but also um, a new vision for where we go is where we'll um, start doing pretty quickly. I, I can't wait to share. Like, we, you know, we, we have a lot of thoughts on paper. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, Zach and I spent much of last year writing books, um, uh, in part about what comes next. Uh, and in my case, at least like the, the, the book is, uh, is going to be out uh, a bit later this year. And I can't wait to share it with people. Having read your book, I think I told you this when I called you, I said, Hey, um, it's better than your, it's your best book yet. And I know what that means <laughs> because the second book, uh, launched a 
you know, a movement um, eventually led to billions in cash relief going to millions of Americans. And this one is more important, if you will, um, especially a couple chapters were just like, yes, like preach, brother. Um, so uh, you you should be, I were hyping this thing up, and um, be, but I um hyping it up on purpose because it's 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 that good. I'm excited to get your takes on the news more often, which is what we've been doing on the pod. Like what I want us to have from Yang on this podcast, at least over the next couple, like rest of this summer is, Andrew, there's a lot going on in the world. I want your perception and your take and your understanding of it. Um, and I think the world enjoys that generally. Um, so um, I'm excited to do more of that. I hope you guys are listening are excited to listen to more of that. We did set the all time mark for donors to a New York City mayoral race uh, in New York City history. I mean, think about that for a sec. I mean, there's still so much powder and enthusiasm uh, fueling us. Uh, it's awesome. And we we have designs on where we're going to go next. Uh, but for now, let, let's enjoy the summer a little bit. Uh, we'll be back with you in, in no time. Love you, New York City. Love you, America. Love you, Yang Gang. Let's go out and enjoy some summer days. Thank you all. See you in a bit, Zach. Love you too. Later, brother.